encourage you to turn to Genesis 1. Uh, Genesis 1, we're going to begin our, our study here in the Pentateuch. And, well, you know, I, I said last week we're going to get through this in a year and a half-ish, and so I had these hopes of getting through the first two chapters. We're going to do an overview. We're going to go through this, and thought, well, we'll get through chapters 1 and 2 next week. And, okay, chapter 1 today. Okay, chapter 1 today and, t- and next week is kind of the plan now. So we're g- I think there's just so many foundational things that we got. <laughs> Craig's nodding at me like, yeah, I know, I've known you a long time, Daniel. You did this in youth group too. Okay. So that's what we're going to do. There's so many foundational things that we, we got to, to, to cover here and just some, some things that how this intersects with our culture. And there's kind of some illustrations I want to spend a little bit more time talking about and I'm not a uh, scientist, obviously. I don't have training in that. But there's some, some things and how this interacts and what this text is saying and isn't saying that I want to be careful on. And so we're going to talk through some of those things this week and next and, and see uh, how it goes uh, by God's grace. But we're going to read the first chapter and the beginning of the, the second chapter, the first three verses of chapter 2 together. And if you are able to, if you'd stand with me as we read together, and we're going to read the whole thing, and so if you get tired and need to sit down, uh, feel free to do so. But let me go ahead and begin Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1, as we look at the God who is God from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening. And there was morning, the fourth day. 
And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening. And there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your creation. We thank you that we exist, and we thank you for this universe in which we exist, and And Father, it's a universe affected by sin. As we read here about your good creation, we're mindful of the purpose to which you've redeemed us and where we're headed, and we think of our future and rejoice in you and pray for your grace in our lives, for your forgiveness. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who brought us into relationship with you through faith in him. Enlighten our hearts this morning, we pray. In his name, amen. Well, there's uh, so much to cover here. I want to spend a a little bit of time kind of setting the stage with with some some things and and maybe spending a little bit longer in this introduction than I might normally do in order to help us understand what Genesis 1 is and and isn't talking about it and how unique it is. I, I think all of us would at least agree with the idea that our understanding of the universe is, is very limited, right? It's limited in a lot of ways. It's limited in both space and, and time. If you think about it, we exist in a very small, small part of the universe. And if you think about how big 
the earth is. It's, it seems pretty big to me. It seems pretty big to us walking on it. But the earth is actually pretty, pretty tiny compared to our solar system. And our, our solar system is, is just a blip in our galaxy. And, and our galaxy is, is just a, a, an infinitesimally small when you consider the vastness of the universe. And there's not even really a, a word used to describe how big the universe is, and there's really no way of being able to comprehend the vastness of it as, as human beings, I think. It's, it's hard to, to, to just even conceptualize the idea of how big the universe is. Think about this. In January of 2006, the New Horizons probe was launched into space, and it traveled 1.4 million miles in its first year and it came to Jupiter and did a little slingshot thing there and then hurtled off into the edge of the solar system over the next few years. And just in July, it arrived at Pluto, right? And for 14 hours, it did some, some readings of Pluto, took some pictures and, and sent those back to us. And just with, with that Little, and again, Pluto is in our solar system. It's not some thing that's light years away. It's, it's in our solar system. And, and even this, this, we'll call it a planet, this tiny planet Pluto, there's so much we didn't know. One science writer, as she was talking about the, the Pluto mission, she said that this little trickle of data that has come back has already uh, changed or overthrown all that we knew about Pluto. Now, that's probably a little bit of an exaggeration, right? But there was so much we didn't know. We, we found out how big Pluto was. We had underestimated how, how large it was. We found out that its moon was larger than we thought the moon was there on Pluto. The shape of Pluto was different than we thought the shape of Pluto would be. And, and interestingly, and I don't know if you guys saw this, but every article that I read about Pluto as it came out was, was talking about how young the planet looked, right? They said, well, this, this, this planet, it's out on the edge of the solar system here, and we kept on thinking that it would be filled with craters from these asteroids and things hitting it, but actually the surface of Pluto looks really, really young, and we're not sure how that is. And, and not only is that remarkable, but Pluto's moon is remarkably young-looking. We don't know how that happened. And you know, it's interesting, some, some uh, creation scientists, biblical creation scientists that I read be, before this uh, New Horizons probe had, had seen any pictures from Pluto predicted that that would be the case. Now, it, it's just interesting. Now, that doesn't prove that Pluto alone doesn't pl- prove that the universe is young or anything like that. But what it does prove is this. It proves that we don't know that much about the universe around us. And because of where we are in space, our ability to comprehend and and know the universe is vastly limited. There is so much we cannot understand about the universe because of where we are in space. But it's not just space. Now, I don't want to belabor this, but I think it's important for us to understand as we approach Genesis 1 who God is and and how little we know. Not only are we limited by space, but we're also limited by, by time. I was reading this article, and it was on my computer, and, and I told Whitney, I said, I think I'm going to mention this concept here, and, and she audibly said, ugh, so I don't know how well this is going to go, but 
again, I'm not a scientist, but this just fascinates me, okay? So uh, there's this thing called the light cone. Maybe you've heard of this. And so imagine that we're right here at this, this point in space and time. We're right here at this po- point in space and time. And imagine, imagine this, this uh, light emanated in all directions and in all times. So here it is at this point in time, and this, this light kind of bursts off in all directions, and it goes all directions in the future, and as, as time continues, it, it continues to go further and further away. So you kind of like this cone effect as the, tr- as the light travels farther and farther in space as time goes on. And then it also goes further and further in, in space in the past. Now, what that means when, when, when scientists talk about the light cone is that anything that's not in that, that light cone, nothing that's, that's, anything that's not in that light cone can't affect us and we can't affect in other words, if there's something, assuming that light is the fastest that anything can, can move in the universe, and that seems to be a, a pretty safe assumption right now, what that means is if there's something a light year away from this point, there is no way that it can affect it at, at this moment in time. So right now, if, if, if there was an explosion that was going to rip the universe apart a light year away, it wouldn't affect me right now. I wouldn't know about it. Someone could, could, could shoot something at me a hundred light years away. An event, and in fact, an event could take place a hundred light years away, and a major catastrophic event, and I'll never know about it, not only because of where I am in space, but because in a hundred years from now, if the Lord has returned, I won't be here anyway. You see what I'm saying? What I'm saying is our ability to comprehend the universe is so, so limited. It's so big, and we're this tiny spot in the universe, and then we're also limited by where we are in time. We cannot comprehend our universe as it exists right now. There's just no way. Light can't travel fast enough. We can't observe things uh, fast enough. So we don't know what the universe looks like right now. We have no way of knowing it because of where we are now. Scientists have even said, I mentioned this before, but they can envision a time if all the galaxies continue moving away from each other and one galaxy moves away at like a little more than half the speed of light and another galaxy begins to move away more than half the speed of light, there could be a time where you could stand on Earth and look in the sky and see no stars and have no ability to, to empirically observe stars because things would have moved away so, so far apart from each other. Now, the, the point is this. We're just these little creatures on a speck of dust in a solar system that's just a speck of dust in a galaxy and so forth. And we have no ability empirically to observe so many things about how the universe is right now. Right now, we can't observe how the universe is and is fullest because we're just limited. Now, if that's true for us right now, how much more true is that as we think about the beginning of the universe? We are so, so limited. And the only way that we can overcome those limitations if, is if there's someone who stands above those laws outside that time and space and, and can tell us about it. And we believe that that is God. That God is the one who can tell us about the beginning of the universe. And what's interesting to me is that of all the things that God could have told us about the universe and its state and its nature, and not only can I understand how big the universe is, we can understand how tiny things in the universe are, and, and maybe God could have talked about those things, and, and, and God doesn't do that here in Genesis 1 and 2. 
even though there are a lot of things about the nature of the universe he could have chosen to tell us, there's a lot of things about how the universe began that he could have chosen to, told, to, to tell us, he didn't. The tone in Genesis 1 is very God-centered. Hey, I'm God, and I created the universe, and I have a purpose for you. Similar tone to what we see in Job, the book of Job, verse 38. In Job 38, verse 4, God is talking to Job, and he says, Look, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid the the cornerstone of the universe? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Job, where were you? And and, and God's point is, look, I'm God. I'm the creator God. And there's a certain deference that needs to be shown to me because I am the the God from the beginning. Because I'm creator God, there's there's an authority that I have. and, And the right way to respond to me is to recognize that authority. So what does God choose to tell us. What he chooses to tell us here in Genesis 1 is very much in keeping with the purpose of the Pentateuch. Remember what we said about the purpose of the Pentateuch. We said that that Moses wrote these things for the original audience who are the people who are going into the promised land. And these people are going to go into a promised land that's already inhabited. And these people who are there in Canaan, the, the Canaanites, have some creation stories. And their creation stories affect how they live. So, for example, they believe that from the beginning there have been gods at war. And they believe that one god kind of uh, at times would triumph over other gods. They believe that the different vegetation came into existence through different various gods. And so there's some that affects how they, because of what they believe about how they begin, it affects about how, how they live right now. They, they show deference to different gods. They believe in many gods, and they believe that there's conflicting gods to worship. And so that affects their understanding of how they begin, affects how they live. And God says, look, as my people are going into Canaan, it's important that they know who I am and how they should live. And you and I, live in a world that has a certain worldview about material things and how they came about that affects how people live. The majority worldview that exists in the North American culture today, for sure, is a materialistic worldview. It's a belief that matter is all there is. There's nothing outside of the laws that govern matter. There's, there's, no, there's no spiritual plane. Matter is all there is. All that we are is matter. And so obviously that creation story affects how we view reality, right? Because we believe that all that we are is matter, it affects what we believe about concepts like love and justice and, and mercy. Those things are ultimately, we believe, just these biological constructs. They're not actually real things. And our, our relationships with each other are, are governed by simply biology, not by two beings with souls, right? And furthermore, it affects what we believe about morality toward other people. 
think about these uh, videos that have, that have come out recently in, in Planned Parenthood, and uh, the language that's used there is, is materialistic language. We're not talking about children. We're talking about uh, tissue. We're talking about products of conception, very cold or Orwellian language that reflects a worldview that denies that there's a sovereign creator God. So Genesis 1 is pretty important, right? There's a lot of things God could have chosen to tell us here, but what comes through very clearly is, look, I'm, I'm sovereign God, and you have a responsibility to live by faith in me. What we're going to see this week and next as we go through Genesis 1 is that God's design for me at the beginning helps me understand his purpose for me in the present and the future. Let me say that again. God's design for me at the beginning helps me understand his plan for me in the present and the future. As I understand what he planned and designed me to do to be, it helps me understand who I'm to be right now and who I'm supposed to be in the future. So we're going to look at this text here, and we're going to, to look at these these uh, truths here. We're going to look at four things about this God from the beginning that helps me understand my story of origin, helps me grasp, grasp God's authority and his purpose for my life. And so let's start. Number one, first thing we see about God here in this passage is that God is the sovereign creator. God is the sovereign creator. What does it say here? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What is this? This is a very theocentric, God-centered beginning. The the creation account doesn't start by, by first talking about some other things. God is the subject of the very first sentence. And God continues to be the subject of this, this whole chapter. He's the one who's bringing creation into being. And, and what do we see about this, this God who's a sovereign creator? Well, we see that he exists before creation. One of the things we see about God is that he's eternal. The beginning happens, and as we come upon the beginning, God is already there. He exists from eternity past. As the writer of Hebrews put it, in Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So God is there before the beginning. He speaks and creation comes into existence. Now, here, here's kind of an interesting thing, right? This idea of eternity and the beginning of time, it's been controversial throughout church history. Whenever Augustine or Augustine was ministering in the late 4th century, early 5th century, some critics of Christianity would mock the idea that God was eternal. They'd say, okay, well, if God is eternal and he created the universe, then, then what was he doing before he created the universe. I mean, was he just sitting around for eternity, just kind of waiting for something to do? That just seems so ridiculous to exist in eternity doing nothing. And Augustine rightly recognized that they were missing the point. First of all, not only was God perfectly content relationally before the creation of the universe, existing in perfect fellowship with himself as a triune God, but To say that God existed in eternity past, just kind of waiting around, misunderstands what happened at the beginning. You see, God didn't just create the earth and things like that in creation. 
he created the concept of time itself as creation began. So it wasn't like God was experiencing a succession of events like we do who exist in time. God is eternal in that he exists outside of time. And that's a concept that, that I can only just very, I can say the words, but not really grasp the concepts, right? So Augustine says, look, you, you don't understand. It's not like he was just sitting around uh, kind of twiddling his thumbs watching the, the, the cosmic clock tick by. He created time as he creates the universe. God is eternal. He exists outside of time. He doesn't experience the succession of events like we do. And so God exists outside of time and he creates time. This thing that you can't escape and can't even imagine escaping, God made it. In our own day, in our own day, materialists have, have struggled with the concept of, of a beginning. In fact, uh, Einstein, I believe it was Einstein, who, who said uh, one, as, as, he, as he was thinking about the begin, a beginning of time, and he said, one cannot take such ideas seriously. He changed his mind on that. But, but many scientists at the time just believed that matter was eternal. For, for how could matter have a beginning that would... That would imply that someone had created it, something that caused a beginning, no matter was eternal. One person said, to deny the infinite duration of time would be to betray the very foundations of science. But Scripture tells us, no, look, Scripture derived there already. There's a beginning, and before that beginning, there was God. He's eternal. He's also powerful, right? And look what the text says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that he does this just with his, his words. He speaks into creation that which doesn't exist. And the materialist tells us that the universe is all there ever was or ever will be. And there's laws that govern it. And, and God says, no, I, I created these laws. Isaiah forty five eighteen. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. As we think about God, the sovereign creator, we see a God who's eternal. We see a God who's powerful, who's speaking all the cosmos into creation. And we see a God here in this passage who's also personal. Look what, look what he does next. He's not some absent deity, but as he creates the heaven and the earth, he looks at it, and as, a psalm, as we just read in Isaiah, he had a, a purpose for it. He didn't want it to be empty. He, he wanted it to be inhabited. He wanted things to happen here. And so now he looks at his creation here, and I believe this is on the first day, and he's not this absent deity, but he's involved in it, mindful of it, personal, and he says, okay, it's without form. It's this wasteland. It's empty. It's not productive. It's not prepared to fulfill my design for it. And so so he's, he's observing it and, and making decisions about what he's going to do. He has a personhood. He has a personhood. Now, why is that important? The original audience, as they read Genesis 1, understands some really important things about the character of God. They understand there's one God. They understand that he's eternal. They understand that this God isn't just some vague force that kind of generally exists in creation. They also understand that this God isn't like one with his creation. He's, he's separate from it. The people who read Genesis 1 and get prepared to go into Canaan and to live in, among the Canaanites rightly understand, okay, God is this one, God is this sovereign creator. 
God is a sovereign creator. Now, how about our own day, right? What sort of creation myths exist in our day and in our culture that impact our ability to to rightly understand and worship God as a sovereign creator? Again, we live in a day in which materialism is, is the religion of our day. And materialists look at the world around us and the universe around us, and sometimes as they describe the universe, they, they use words that imply a creator. They use words like, it's, you know, this, this, um, this is designed this way or it's shaped this way, and they, they use creation-type language. And a materialist would say, okay, I'm using this language, but that doesn't mean there's, there's really a creator. And so now materialists, uh, the, these men and women who are material scientists aren't, aren't uh, stupid people. I mean, these are very brilliant people, and they recognize there's a problem there they need to deal with. Okay, how did this universe come to have design, to, to look like it has design? And so they've come up with some theories. They said, well, it's, it's, not that the, it's not that the universe was designed. It's that the universe has these laws, and these laws that govern the universe create the appearance of design. Okay? It's not that the universe has design. It has laws and these laws make things look like there's design. But again, they're smart people, and they recognize there's a problem there too, right? They've just kind of kicked the can down the road a little bit. Because now you've got another problem. Well, man, where do these laws come from? There's a really, uh, I think, a very fair material uh, secular humanist named Davies who really struggled with this question. He goes, he goes, where do these laws come from? I know we've got these laws, and, and where do they come from? And some people, these materialists, say, well, well, maybe, maybe these are just, these laws just happen. Yeah, but they're always, they're constant, and we can do science because of these laws. Okay, the materialist says, well, maybe there's, and these are some theoretical physicists and such, they say, well, maybe there's a bunch of universes, a bunch of universes, like tons. And in all of these different universes, there's different laws, and we just happen to live in the universe with these laws. And the theorist says, well, Okay, um, they, and they're, they're trying to be intellectually honest here. They say, okay, that, that helps a little bit, but why these universes? Now we've, we keep kicking this can down the road. Now we've got a ton of laws to account for. And where do all these laws come? Again, you put order into a system and order comes out, but someone has to put the order in for order to come out of a system. So what do we do with that? And the theoretical physicist says this. Well, okay, how, how about this? An infinite number of universes. How about an infinite number of universes? There's an infinite number of universes, an infinite number of possibilities, and now, of course, we live in one of those universes, and we live in the universes with these laws, but there's an infinite number of universes, which means anything could have happened. That works. Kind of. Now, the cool thing about that theory is that there's a universe that exists under that theory where, like, Lord of the Rings is true. And that would be really cool, right? Now, the bad thing is there's also a universe where Downton Abbey is true. And pity the person who has to live there, right? What do we do with that? So the, the theoretical, the, the physicist as well, that's a possibility. Stephen Barr, in his book, Modern Physics and Ancient Faith, he says a line that I think is, is very true as he talks about this theory. He says, here's what we've done. To abolish one unobservable God we've created an infinite number of unobservable universes. 
We've got this universe. Man, it sure looks created, but I don't know. I think those are just laws, and I think those laws are just, you know, one of the infinite number of universes. And Bar says, Riley, look, to get rid of this God that's so evident in his creation, we've had to create, but we can't observe him. We don't like that, so we've created an infinite number of universes we can't observe. I think he's right. Now, what does this mean for us and where we are in redemptive history? If God is a sovereign creator, he's there at the beginning and he creates the universe, what does that mean? It means as I know more about who Jesus is and and where I am in redemptive history, I I see that, that Jesus is the one who's here at the beginning creating the universe, right? Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We see it was me that he's the one who's sustaining creation. So what does that mean? As I come to Genesis chapter 1, I see that the and there's evidence of this in the chapter itself. As I look at it through the lens of redemptive history, I understand that the triune God is in this process of creation. And that means Jesus Christ is, is here. And we know that Jesus Christ is the one who's the, the word of God, speaking the universe into existence. And he is the one who created the universe. And he's the one who sustains the universe. And he is the purpose of the universe existing. Now, how does that influence my understanding of the gospel? How does Genesis 1 change my understanding of the gospel? It does so in this way. Whenever Jesus Christ says, follow me, whenever I see that I'm to to place my faith in the lordship of Jesus Christ, to accept him as Lord and Savior, and I understand that he's creator God, it changes the equation a bit, right? I'm not just coming to Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, I want to be your buddy. Let's be pals. Now, yes, Jesus loves us, and there's a brotherhood there, but when I say that he's Lord of my life, I'm saying what I'm doing is I'm, I'm placing my life under the lordship of the one who created the universe. There's an amazing amount of deference I'm going to show that guy, right? I mean, think about the deference you'd show to a a boss at work, or the president of the United States, or the ruler of the world. I mean, now imagine the ruler of the universe who brought the universe into creation, who sustains it by his, the power of his word, and is, is the one for whom the entire universe was created, a universe that's beyond the size that I can even comprehend. And he is saying, make me Lord of your life. Now, how extensive is that lordship? Pretty. Complete. Absolute. That's what I understand about the gospel from Genesis 1, right? One of the things. God is a sovereign creator. Jesus Christ is a sovereign creator. And as I place my faith in his lordship, I do so absolutely. Here's here's a second thing about God I want us to begin to consider. We're not going to get all the way through this. Just kind of begin to talk about it. God is the only God. God is the only God. That's the second thing we see about God here. He's trying to convey to the Israelites, God is the only God. As we look at these days, 
you'll, you'll notice that the first three days kind of go together and the next three days go together. The first three days are kind of about some, some preparation, some separating, and then the, the next three days are about uh, being fruitful and, and making this, this productive. And you'll see that day one kind of goes with day four, day two goes with day five, day three goes with day six, and those, those kind of go together we'll see as we read through this. Now, let me just give some, uh, let me just give you some words to think through as we talk about these days here in Genesis. About two groups of people. Uh, first of all, just as we talk about, uh, about materialists or, or, you know, secular humanists, whatever term you want to use to describe people who would deny the supernatural, and specifically those who are materialists who are in the scientific community. There are some people in here who have scientific training. Maybe some of you have terminal degrees in, in some area, branch of science. But most of us don't have terminal degrees in, in the sciences. And sometimes I'm, I'm concerned about the way that we talk about some very brilliant people. Sometimes we're very disdainful. We use words like, uh, stupid, or we use words like, uh, you know, some shock, shocking words like we can't believe how, how foolish they are, and, and certainly the fool is said in, in his heart or her heart, there is no God, and so that there's absolutely a, a foolishness to rejecting God's, um, God's revelation. But I just think we need to be careful, okay? Sometimes we find some sort of uh, scientific, you know, fact, and we you know, now I understand more science than, than anyone else, and I can, can talk about how foolish other people are. Just be, just be careful. First of all, we want to be kind, right? We want to be gracious people. Secondly, we don't want to look foolish ourselves. And so if we begin talking about things authoritatively that we don't understand, we're, we're just going to make ourselves and, and God, uh, by, by extension, uh, look bad, and we don't want to do that. So I just would encourage c- caution as we defend a biblical worldview, I would encourage caution about what we talk about and how we say it, and, and just humility, too, as we listen. The second thing I'd encourage us with is uh, about graciousness among Christians who disagree with us. There are some things in Genesis that I believe to deny is to enter into heresy. So if you deny the historicity of Adam and Eve, I, I, believe, that's, I believe that's heresy. I believe if you deny the reality of the fall, that's heretical. I believe if you deny the reality of sin, that's, that's heretical. I believe those things are, are heretical. The denial of the, the special creation of Adam and Eve, I think you're, um, you're, you're, so, you're so violating Scripture's teaching the gospel that you've entered into heresy. But there are some other things in Genesis 1 that even though our church teaches one thing, I think it's okay for Christians to have different opinions on. And we're getting into the, the days here in Genesis, and uh, our church uh, teaches that these are uh, literal days in the sense that they're a morning and an evening, a, a, a real day. And we believe there's a lot of reasons to, to do that. To, to, there's the word choice that's used here. Uh, you come to Exodus 20, and you see the, the commandment that's based upon, you know, the, the commandment to keep the Sabbath is based upon what looks like a, a literal day. We're told to work six days, rest one. I mean, uh, th- these look like normal days as we come to the text. But I appreciate 
that there are some Christians who disagree with me on this or disagree with our, our church on, on this in, our, in, in terms of our teaching statement. And there are members of our church who disagree on how to interpret these, these days. Now, again, I think you have to say Scripture's our authority, and so whatever conclusion I come to, I'm coming to an honest study of the text and, uh, and, and being very careful there. But some people, for example, uh, Christians who I believe are, are uh, orthodox, would come to Genesis 1 and they said, well, I think there's a gap between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Now, based upon Jesus' words about from the beginning, Adam and Eve, or we're talking about marriage from the beginning, I tend to think that's not the case. But that's not a, that's not a heretical viewpoint. Or some people look at the days here and they think, well, I think these are ages. And uh, we disagree with that, but that's not a heretical viewpoint. So I think we have to be very gracious in how we talk to each other when we have difference of opinions about some things that, quite frankly, are not the main focus of the text, are somewhat ambiguous. Here's what John Frame says. He says this, um, There have long been differences among Christians on this matter, and various views have been accepted in the church. And only recently has there been a movement to make the literal view a test of orthodoxy. And then he says this, I think, is very important. He says, It's not clear to me that any other doctrine rests logically on interpreting these days as... 24-hour or so periods. A figurative view does not, I think, imperil, imperil our confession of biblical inerrancy or the historicity of Genesis, for the figurative views under discussion claim to be derived precisely from the text. A figurative view of the days does not so much warrant and uh, d- doesn't warrant believing in evolution. It doesn't compromise little, r- literal historicity of the fall of Adam and Eve or of any of the truths concerning our new creation in Christ. Okay, and so... Uh, that's kind of what I would say as we approach these days. It's a, a pastoral issue that I think we just have to be very careful about uh, how we treat brothers and sisters in Christ about some issues that are very controversial in our current cultural climate. So what is the, the main point that God is making here? I think the main point that he's making is that he is the only God. He is the only God. Now, we're going to delve into this uh, next week as we continue this. But, but what we're seeing as we go through each of these days, let me just kind of introduce this idea. As, as God, for example, separates the light from the dark, we don't see anything in the darkness as a threat to God. God doesn't begin to separate the light from the dark and kind of get scared because there might be some sort of creature there in the dark that, that vies with him for supremacy. As he separates the, the, um, the, the heavens and the water, there's no, creature in the water that's going to to attack God. There's no deity in the sky that's going to vie with him for supremacy. God is the only God who's there at the beginning. And that affects the Canaanites and the Israelites as they lived among them in, in some very profound ways. The religion of our day exalts the creation instead of the creator. And as we come to Genesis chapter 1, we see that there's a God who's a sovereign creator. He's the only God. And as we look at this Genesis 1 account of the beginning of the universe, we understand also that not only is is God the Father there, but but the triune God is there creating, which means that, that Jesus is there. Now, we're preparing to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And here's the most remarkable thing of anything we've, we've said this morning. Far more remarkable 
to me than the vastness of our universe and the smallness of, of the quantum world, far more remarkable to me than the creation of, of all this is that the God who created all this would die for me. Now that's an amazing truth, right? And as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, we understand this, that that the sovereign God who created the universe has lovingly provided a way for me to be in relationship with him. And I enter into that relationship with God not on the basis of my own works. And again, as we think about gospel foundations in Genesis, how ridiculous is the idea of trying to win the approval of the God who created the universe seem, right? I come into relationship not on the basis of things I bring to God, but simply by placing my trust in God himself, in Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, who died for me. As we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper, I encourage you to, to ask God to continue to reveal those areas to you in which you haven't yielded to his lordship and that you would make him absolute, complete Lord of your life. A commitment maybe you've already made as you became a Christian, but one that we continue to need to think through as we think about what it means to serve a God who created the entire cosmos. I'm going to ask the, the men to begin to make their way forward. As they make their way forward, I'm going to pray and, and ask that God would bless our time of remembering his his death and his resurrection. Father, we recognize that we are unable, apart from your divine revelation, to understand anything, to rightly comprehend anything about you. We have the stars and the universe that, sh- that should uh, tell us about you, but because of our, our sin and our own finite understanding. We, we don't grasp the message. And so we thank you for your divine revelation that's revealed your character to us in a special way. And we, we trust in your son, Jesus, for our salvation. Help us to make him, to, to continue to, to live according to the commitment we've made as we placed our faith in you, to, to live as sons and daughters of you with Jesus Christ as our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.